I'm willing to serve. Just show up on April 24th if you're available and come help us out with some uh, physical projects, manual labor that we got going on. And then below that, you'll see that we have a father-daughter dance coming up, which I believe is actually one of two dances we have coming up this year, which will let you know how we feel about dancing here at this church. We're okay with it. If you are a father, uh, then you need to bring your daughter to the dance. If you are a daughter, you need to bring your father to the dance. I will not be there. I, I am a father, but have no daughter, and I'm not going to dance around a bunch of young women. That's awkward. So find that. There's no, there's no sign up in the back. Uh, find that information there. Make sure that that ends up in your calendar. That is all the announcements that I'm going to do for you. Last thing, uh, in order of preparation, we really care about what the Bible has to say here. And so we're going to be using it a lot. If you forgot yours or you don't have one or you'd like to follow along in the version that I'm going to be using, stick your hand up in the air. We have some highly attractive men that are carrying around stacks of Bibles. They will put a Bible in that hand and you can use that. Uh, see, there's whistling going on. That's for you guys, or maybe it's for the stacks of Bibles, one way or the other. If you need a Bible, um, make sure that you catch their attention. We're going to be using it this morning. And then once you have the Bible in your hand, uh, either the one that you brought or the one that they just gave you, go ahead and open it up to Habakkuk. Uh, unless you went to Jesse's School of Pronunciation, then it's Habakkuk. I will not be able to say it that way. I've been saying Habakkuk since I was like five years old. So, uh, Habakkuk is going to be where we're going. We're going to uh, resume studying Habakkuk today. So if, you're, if you have a church Bible, go ahead and open it up to page 785. Uh, if you have your Bible, I don't know what page it is. Uh, you'll find it. Don't be afraid to use the table of contents because as you're just flipping through, you might miss it a bunch of times. But once we get there, go ahead and stand up. And the reason why I'm asking you to do that is we have a tradition here as a church to use our bodies to remind us of the importance of what's going on. What we are about to do is read God's words, which is significant. You heard a lot of words this week. These will hopefully bring you significantly more guidance than anything that you may have listened to this week. We are going to read chapter 1, pick it up in verse 12 to finish off chapter 1 today. I'm going to read it for us. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. But you, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remains silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, and he drags them out with his net, and he gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. And his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, as we turn to your text this morning, please remove any 
weird need that I have to be heard, that your message might be clear, that we would be able to see in this text exactly the message that I know that each of these people need. God, I know that many of us in this room are asking questions like this. Holy Spirit, please come and provide the answers that we might more accurately reflect you. Amen. You can be seated. All right. So, last weekend was a highly significant weekend, arguably the most significant weekend in the history of Christianity when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But before that, we had been studying through Habakkuk, and we... uh, I don't know if you've been here. I want to make sure that you are on the page where we take off from verse 12. So we're going to review real quickly. So Habakkuk, in the first four verses, is opening up his message that he is sharing with God. God and Habakkuk are interacting within the book of Habakkuk. And in verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk provides a complaint. His complaint essentially is this. God everything's going wrong in Judah. Habakkuk lived in Judah. Everything's going wrong. God, you are tolerating evil. God, the legal system is broken and there's no justice. God, bad things are happening to good people. It's amazing that people would even try to argue that the Bible's not relevant toward today. (laughs) Feel like I hear those things on a regular basis. I don't know about you. God, how could you be letting everything going wrong in Judah? See, there is a way of thinking that was very reflective of Habakkuk's thought that reflected in the text. And I've been, through my personal time, been studying through Deuteronomy and stumbled upon a passage that I think will really quickly help you see how a Jewish person during Habakkuk's time frame would be seeing how life is supposed to work. Keep your finger in Habakkuk and turn over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. If you... I'll get you a page number here if you're using a church Bible. If you're using a church Bible, we'll be on page 169. Uh, Deuteronomy is the book where the people of Israel are getting ready under Moses' leadership to finally enter the promised land. And through Moses, God is telling the people again what the key law is supposed to be, how they're supposed to live when they enter the land. And that law is being reiterated. In verse, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 28, we see how God sets up for them the system that they're going to live with. And I'm just going to show you three quick verses so that you can quickly see how a Jew thinks about life. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. All right, so so make sure that we all understand what this means. If the people of Israel obey all the commandments that they've just been talking about in the prior chapters, or the chapters prior to chapter 28, what happens to them? Blessings. Blessings is kind of a a churchy word, so let's make sure that we understand what that means. What are blessings? Great. Nice, simple explanation. Good stuff, right? If you obey God and follow these commands, good stuff will happen to you, okay? However, 
Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So, if they don't obey all of God's commands, what happens? Bad stuff. Good, good. This is good. We are all on the same page. It's not very difficult to understand, is it? If they obey all of God's commands, good stuff happens. If they don't obey all of God's commands, bad stuff happens. And that's the deal that God's people were making with God as they were preparing to enter into the promised land. Here's the issue. I'm going to say more on this in a moment, but just in case as we go through the morning you kind of tune out or you have to leave or whatever, this becomes kind of an overly simplistic view of how the world works. And we sometimes, we don't understand that this was largely dependent on Yahweh's promise to the Hebrew people at that time. It's not a model for how all things work. Like I said, I'm going to share more on that in a moment. But to go back to Habakkuk, you hopefully kept your finger there, flip back there. So what Habakkuk is doing is he's complaining that Yahweh is not holding up his end of the deal. God, the world is full of disobedience. So it's time to respond and bring justice. So in verse 5 through 11, God responds and he says, Habakkuk, Calm down, okay? Here's the plan. I'm going to judge Judah with the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans, you may not necessarily be familiar with this people group. I wasn't. Fortunately, I studied, for it, uh, studied it for us both. The Chaldeans were a very powerful people group, probably the most powerful people group in the kingdom of Babylon. And they were so powerful and became so influential in Babylon that essentially you could use those terms interchangeably, Babylon and Chaldean. Now, think about the term Babylon from a Jewish perspective. Babylon, the the first part of the word, starts with a word you might recognize from the Tower of... Very good. You guys are like on it this morning. The Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, is it a good story or a bad story? It's good. You're so good. It's a bad story. It's not a story that we look at and go, yay, Tower of Babel. It's actually a story where the people, because of their ego and because of their desire to be more significant than God, build this tower. God has to decimate the tower, separate the people. And Babel becomes this place of reference where God confuses the people because of their godlessness and their own self-worth and even idolatry. And as a result, Babylon for the Jew became a place indicative of those types of things. It's a place of confusion due to godlessness and idolatry. Now that brings us to verse 12, our section for the day. Verse 12 is Habakkuk's response to God's explanation of the plan. God stepped in and told Habakkuk, hey, I've got a plan here. I'm going to use the Chaldeans, and Habakkuk responds to that. First, we start with his response in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. What Habakkuk is first doing in verse 12 is recognizing Yes, we deserve judgment. I accept the judgment that you've got coming for us. Here's the problem. Verse 13. 
You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God, how could you use wicked people to judge your people? Now, put it on pause just for a minute. Notice how he even references the people, his own people here people that are more righteous, he's already recognized that they're not righteous, right? He's already recognized that they're deserving of judgment because of their disobedience to God. He's already recognized that they're not in a good position to be trying to leverage God's action in any way. But God, how could you use the Babylonians to judge your people? He goes on to describe the Babylonians in 14, 15, and 16, and he uses an analogy, a fisherman analogy. Verses 14 and 15, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, the Babylonians, bring all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad Babylon has been successfully fishing the cultures around them for years. Babylon was the powerhouse nation at this time. Anytime Babylon looked at something and said, I want that, it took it. Anytime Babylon said, hey, we're now in charge of you, the people basically said, okay, we kind of have to go with your plan. Because Babylon had that much power. There wasn't a way to stop them. They were a steamroller. They were a, 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 to mix our metaphors together, because there was no steamrollers and fishermen. Sorry, I should have just stuck with the fisherman analogy. But the fishing culture, uh, the, the picture that's there is that they're just throwing out a net and pulling everything up, dredging everything up, dominating the cultures around them. So much so that in verse 16, we see this description. Therefore, because the Babylonians have been so successful at fishing, therefore... He sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Habakkuk's definition of the Babylonians is that they have been so successful in dominating all of the cultures around them, but they're idiots. Instead of worshiping Yahweh, they worship their fishing tackle. Did you see this in here? They worship their fishing pole and their nets. How ridiculous is it that they would look at their things, the, the, the tools that they use to accomplish something, and make that their object of worship instead of the God that's actually allowing them any type of success? God, verse 17, how could you keep this happening? Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, are you going to let these godless heathens continue to dominate the entire world? See, what's, what's Habakkuk's main problem here? What's he really struggling with here? Because he's willing to admit, even within this text, God, I recognize that we deserve judgment. But why would you use such an evil people to do it? You see, what Habakkuk is struggling with is not what God is doing. He's essentially turning to God and saying, well, I know that we need judgment, but no, no, don't do it that way. He's not struggling with what God is doing. He's struggling with the way 
that God is doing it. Habakkuk is a Jew. He knows the deal that the people struck with Yahweh and knows that people, if they do not follow the law, that they can expect that Yahweh would judge them. But why would he use such a foolish and evil people? The biggest thing that Habakkuk sees as their problem, he describes in this analogy, 14, 15, and 16, but 16 really drives it home. Instead of worshiping Yahweh, they worship their nets. They're, They're just too dumb to realize that their success comes from God, and they turn to their means of accomplishment as their God. They worship stuff. Part of the thing, or one thing that I do that ends up helping me in my job a lot is I monitor social media, which I don't really enjoy. I don't understand you people who do that for fun. <laughs> but one of the things that I end up looking for is, is what's, what's going on in culture, what are people talking about, and, I, and I've noticed a theme that there are a heck of a lot of photos and videos that people put up of, of their cars Right? They love the photos and the videos of their cars. Look, out my, look at my new wheels, or look at the new paint that's on my cars, or here's me driving my car. Look how fast my car is. Right? They, they love photos and pictures of their cars. You know what? They also love photos and pictures. I, I, I saw one of an athlete um, sitting at a table, and in front of him were just stacks of money. They love photos and pictures of money. It's just stacks and stacks of money. You know the other thing that I see a, a ton of pictures with, and these are, the, these are some of the ones that we're looking for as well, is there are just tons of pictures of people like holding guns and like pointing them at the camera, and they hold them this way, of course, right? Holding the guns or pictures of them shooting the guns at the range. People love the pictures showing the means that they have. I like cars. Don't get me wrong. Cars are cool. But at the end of the day, a car takes me from this place to that place. That's it. That's the car's job. And there are faster ways to do it and fancier looking ways to do it. But at the end of the day, it takes me from here to there. Right? And yet, we worship our cars. Look, I I think that money is important, right? I I like to have money. I'm not like Scrooge McDuck wanting to like swim in my money. By the way, that's really gross. Money is gross. You should wash your hands after just touching it, let alone swimming in it. Scrooge McWeirdo. Money is, is helpful, but at the end of the day, money is just the means by which I figure out how to feed my kids and the means by which I pay the bank to not take my house away from me. That, that's it. It's just the means. But we worship our money. Guys, I have no problem whatsoever with guns. None whatsoever. But holy cow, do we worship guns. It might actually be easier if just all guns disappeared tomorrow. That, I, I wouldn't even mind if that took place, if just they all disappeared tomorrow. It's just a means to accomplish a certain task. Friends, we and the people around us have a tendency to be just like the Babylonians are described to be. We worship our means. We spend so much time trying to collect more of these means. 
how Habakkuk talks about that type of behavior is that these types of people that do this type of thing, they're fools. They're idiots. They're wicked. And his frustration is that, God, they seem to be succeeding. They seem to be winning. How could you allow people that are so foolish and so wicked to be the winners? God, what are you doing? You see, even though Jews interpreted life along the lines of a legal covenant, and that legal covenant was reflected in Deuteronomy, there has always been another more overriding story. Historians are pretty much in agreement when it comes to the Bible that probably the first book time frame that was written was the book of Job. I don't know if you're familiar with what's in the book of Job. Let me just summarize it for you. Job, good guy, does everything right. And what happens as a result? Everything goes wrong for him. Everything goes wrong for him. And his friends coming along to try to provide him support walk up to him and go, man, Job, everything's going wrong for you. You must have screwed up. And Job goes, nuh-uh. And the next friend comes, hey, Job, you really screwed up. No, I didn't. And it gets to the point where Job is just like, if God was here, he would be able to show, I would give him a piece of my mind. And then God shows up and he's like, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The first story being told to the Hebrews was that even though, yes, the covenant worked the way that it did, and it was a deal that God struck with those people, there was a story going on behind that story. The writer of Ecclesiastes in in chapter 8, verse 14, in his poetry was writing things, and we're talking thousands of years ago, that bad things seem to keep happening to good people, and the wicked keep seeming to prosper. People seem to always be struggling with this story, and, and the Jews struggled with this story just like Habakkuk was struggling with the story. Fortunately, we get to see that this overriding story takes a monumental shift in the story of Jesus. If you think about it, Jesus is a guy who did everything right. Didn't go so well for him for a while, right? He did everything right, and yet as a result, he was persistently persecuted, ultimately subjected to one of the most painful, excruciating deaths that could have occurred but was vindicated by his resurrection, what we celebrated last week. That God said that the suffering was not the end to the story. I want to show you a couple of things uh, about what Jesus said before that moment happened. If you turn over to John chapter 12, I'm going to just show you a couple of short verses. Because Jesus shows us, when it comes to trying to understand these stories, Jesus definitely walked the walk. But we want to make sure that we understand what he was talking about before it ended up even happening. Jesus was dropping all kinds of hints about what was occurring before he ended up having to go to his death. In John chapter 12, we see things like this in verse 24. Truly, truly, which when we translate it essentially 
This is just Jesus' way of saying, hey, pay attention, I'm about to tell you something really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Friends, I guarantee you, when Jesus said that, the disciples were sitting there going, okay. Uh, He's always saying weird things. What are we talking about? In case, uh, Jesus knowing they needed a little bit more explanation, he, he says this in a flip a page over in John 15, verse 20. John 15, 20, he says this, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, the majority of then the New Testament that follows after the significant story of Jesus, and we look at the teachings that he shared The majority of the New Testament then turns to those that would follow Christ and discusses that we need to adjust our expectations of how life is going to work. It's preparing us for the reality as disciples of Christ that we will suffer. And the text and the people that wrote the text are not trying to help Christians understand how to get away from suffering or how to avoid suffering. It's how to live within suffering in such a way that people would understand who Jesus was and is right now. Just like Habakkuk, we often understand that these things are true, but when it actually happens, just like Habakkuk, we have a tendency to question God in the same exact way. Think about it. God, I know you want me to grow in you, but why are you using persecution to do it? God, I I know you want me to serve other people, but why do you make them so frustrating? God, I know you want me to seek you, but why are you so hard to find sometimes? God, why do I do everything right and I don't get ahead? And while people who don't care at all about you, they seem to be doing just fine. And most of them seem to be doing really well. It's not fair. Why would you allow this? Now, for the section of text that we were working with this morning, I should stop there. Because the question just looms over that section. And it's helpful to recognize that that question is okay to ask. It's helpful to even stay in that place for a little while, to ask that question. Now, I don't know that I don't necessarily get to come and be the guy answering the question, because Jesse will probably be back to start sharing the next section of text with you. But I, I I couldn't go without at least trying to answer the question a little bit. So indulge me just for a few moments here. Why is it that God seems to to do the things that he does and the way that he does them? You know, I'm sure that you've heard it before, but it probably bears repeating. 
that God is not interested primarily in your happiness. He's interested in your holiness. I'm going to say it again, primarily because I need to hear this multiple times each day. God is not primarily interested in your happiness. He's interested in your holiness. You see, what God knows, and he knows significantly better than you do and I do, is that the way to truly bring you the flourishing, full life that you really desire is to do whatever is necessary to plant you firmly in Christ. And friends, a servant is no greater than his master. The path of Jesus, if you are in Christ, will often be your path as well. And God's okay with that happening because he's trying to do something bigger than your temporary experience of your life. You know, even the same person that I quoted earlier, uh, the, the poet from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, even he says within that same chapter, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and yet prolongs his life, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. As a speaker, I'm tempted to come up with a creative maybe alliterative list of five different ways to answer this question that all start with the same letter or try to, try, to be, try to be something fun. I'm not saying that's bad. But like I told you before, the majority of the New Testament is trying to guide us in this very principle. And I've decided instead of trying to make a, a, a list for you, I just want to read you a solid chunk of Scripture. So I'm going to invite the band to come up while I, while I, uh, I turn over to it. If you want to follow along with me, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have one of the church Bibles, we'll be on page 965. I'm going to just read you a solid chunk. It's kind of long, and I'm not going to provide you a lot of explanation because I don't think it's necessary. I think it's pretty clear. But if you're struggling with the reality of why is it that God would allow things to happen the way that they're happening, this passage of Scripture is for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted but we're not forsaken, not left alone. Struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that... The life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what it's been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, though our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, this next verse is, is sometimes a difficult pill to swallow because I know, I know that some of you in this room are going through it. I get it. I know you are. But Paul writes in 17, but this light, momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen, those are the ones that are eternal. Just like Habakkuk, we are prone to question why God would do the things that he does and do them the way that he does them. But friends, we have hope. We don't lose heart. We are being prepared. Yahweh is still at work in you. Trust that God knows exactly what needs to be done, even down to the way it needs to be done. God, that's really difficult to accept. <laughs> and yet in our weakness, we recognize that you accept us even when we're willing to admit to you that your truth is difficult to accept. But we look to you recognizing that your truth is what is true. God, drive it deep into our, our souls that we might trust the things that you are doing around us, that we might trust the way that you're allowing them to be done. God, we know that we want to reflect Jesus to this lost world, and we know that that means following his path, and we accept everything that you have for us. We ask for your power to do it, that this world might know you. Amen. Won't you, won't you stand with us? As Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? The battle belongs to the Lord.
right on my knees with my hands lifted high oh god the battle belongs to you every fear i lay at your feet i'll sing through the night oh god the battle belongs to remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. 